This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Harvest Festival On November At long last we've punched through the silly season of October with its spooky themes and cotton cobwebs and can finally get down to the business of ending the year. It's about time. Because if there's one thing we can all agree on, it's that Thanksgiving is the best holiday ever. Period. And we can't have that until Halloween is out of the way, so good riddance. Thanksgiving is, of course, a celebration of all the things we are thankful for from the previous year. We've talked about it before, at quite some length. Your friends and family get together, there's a big roast bird, some mashed up potatoes, a bit of cranberry, and some altogether questionable side dishes from Aunt Edna and Uncle Petrov. You watch the parade, eat too much, and then try to stay awake during the football. We've even discussed why it's so hard to stay awake after the big meal. We all know all about Thanksgiving, too. At least, the all of us that is American, well, the sort of American that is the United States of. Pilgrims came. They landed on some rock in East Coast USA at the wrong time of year. The harvest failed. Native Americans showed up basically from nowhere and brought along a lot of food. The pilgrims ate it all up in one big feast and so survived to become real Americans the next year. That basically covers it. Oh, and it was the fourth Thursday in November, and so that's when we do it all again and call it Thanksgiving. As in, thanks for giving us all that food, you guys. Check out these beads and blankets we brought. Admittedly, you and we both know that's not strictly correct. We're smarter than that now. Most of that story falls into the category we like to call lies to children. They're the sorts of stories you tell to kids so they get some basic idea about what's going on, and then they're supposed to spend the next 13 years or so learning how to refine that story closer to the truth, so they can get back to making sure they color inside the lines. But we digress. So what about the U.S. version of Thanksgiving? If the story we all sort of know about Thanksgiving isn't quite right, what is the story behind our modern holiday? Not the story of the first Thanksgiving, but the story of Thanksgiving as we now celebrate it. What are we celebrating? Why does it occur in November? Why on the fourth Thursday of the month? Well, because a president decided that's when we'd do it. Back when the country was young, it used to be that each state had their own day for Thanksgiving, depending largely on the local growing season. Some observations of the holiday occurred in October, others as late as January. Southern states had practically no tradition of Thanksgiving at all. Up until President Lincoln's time, if you were a savvy traveler, you could get in three, maybe four Thanksgivings just by hopping from state to state in places like New England. Although, by the 19th century, most of the states settled on the last Thursday of November as the usual date. Largely, this was because there was another holiday at about that time. It was a celebration of the day British troops were forced out of the fledgling America after the Revolutionary War, called Evacuation Day. It made sense to combine the two, with Thanksgiving eventually becoming the more predominant and taking over. Seriously, how would you even decorate for Evacuation Day? Also, that's a terrible name. 
1863, Lincoln proclaimed the last Thursday in November as Thanksgiving, making it an official holiday, which pleased writer Sarah Josepha Hale to no end. She'd spent the last 17 years on a letter-writing campaign to every politician she could think of trying to get the holiday official recognition. It was the letter she wrote to President Lincoln that finally convinced him to recognize the holiday and set its date. She was a well-known author and editor at the time. Along with being one of America's first female writers, she wrote one of the first books to deal with slavery in America, Northwood, Life North and South. Probably, though, you will be familiar with her most popular work, a little ditty called Mary Had a Little Lamb. Originally called Mary's Lamb, it first appeared in an 1830 collection of her poems called Poems for Our Children. The thing is, though, when Lincoln declared the holiday, Thanksgiving wasn't about a successful harvest or about pilgrims and Native Americans. He did it specifically in celebration of Union success in the American Civil War. And because of that, it wouldn't be until Reconstruction in the 1870s that Thanksgiving would really become a national American holiday. In 1939, the National Retail Dry Goods Association successfully petitioned President Franklin D. Roosevelt to change the date to the next to last Thursday in November so they could extend the Christmas shopping season by a week. This caused no end of confusion since the change was signed in October of that year. No one knew when they were supposed to celebrate. College and high school sports teams had to scramble to reschedule games. Half the country went with the new date, the other half with the old. And some states threw in the towel and celebrated by giving employees both the old and new day off. Finally, in 1941, Congress set the date to the fourth Thursday in November. This time for reals, no, we mean it. Meanwhile, Wither Canada. Their Thanksgiving holiday occurs in early October on the second Monday. The reasons for their holiday and the date it falls on are equally confusing. At first, all the provinces sort of did their own thing, again according to the change of seasons. Some of the initial celebrations are tied to the arrival of French colonists in the 17th century and would extend even into late winter. When new settlers from Ireland, Scotland, and Germany begin arriving later in the century, the traditional celebration date moved to late autumn and began to incorporate harvest festival practices from those countries. Eventually, an influx of royalists from the states during the Revolutionary War brought U.S. traditions with them, which were then further incorporated into Canadian celebrations. Among those traditions? Let's roast a turkey and eat it. The first official Canadian Thanksgiving came in, wait for it, April of 1872. That's right, April, not harvest time at all. At the time, by order of Queen Victoria, a day of Thanksgiving was declared to celebrate the recovery of a very young Prince of Wales, the future King George V, from serious, near-fatal illness. She ordered all the realms under her rule to celebrate. And so Canada did. By the late 19th, early 20th century, the date of the Canadian celebration was moved to November 6th and stayed there until the Declaration of Armistice Day conflicted with it. It was then moved to its present date in 1957. A quick survey of the other countries which observe a similar Thanksgiving reveals that very few of them are actually tied to the idea of a harvest festival. For example, 
Granada celebrates Thanksgiving on October 25th. But what they are celebrating is the 1983 invasion of Granada by U.S. forces in response to a military coup on the island and the subsequent establishment of democratic elections. Thanksgiving in the Netherlands is celebrated to mark the fact that the pilgrims received a warm welcome when they first fled to the city of Leiden on their way to the New World. It's held on the morning of the American Thanksgiving Day in Pieterskirk Church. Otherwise, Orthodox Protestant churches in the Netherlands have a Thanksgiving observance on the first Wednesday of November. Even the timing of the celebrations is suspect. Australia's Norfolk Island celebrates a Thanksgiving on the last Wednesday in November in a tradition brought to the island by American whaling ships. The tiny island nation of St. Lucia celebrates the first Monday in October, and Liberia holds their celebrations on the first Thursday of November. All three of them have growing seasons vastly different than would otherwise be suspected if the modern Thanksgiving was really about celebrating the harvest. Originally, though, it was about celebrating the successful harvest. It wasn't all about pilgrims starving or not starving. Lots of places didn't even have pilgrims. It was more about being grateful for not starving yourself about being thankful for being properly prepared for the long winter ahead. See, many of the traditions we engage in on Thanksgiving and other occasions, if not the actual holiday itself, originally started as harvest festivals. Harvest festivals were, and are, all about the successful completion of another growing season and stocking up for winter. Harvest comes, by way of Middle English, from the Anglo-Saxon word harvest, which meant autumn. It was the time set aside for the gathering in of the crops from the field. Note that even though we often use harvesting interchangeably with the word reaping, they aren't the same. Reaping is the act of cutting down the grains and cereals and laying them in the field to be collected. Harvesting is the actual act of collecting them and removing them from the fields. In more modern usage, harvesting has come to take on additional meaning to include the process of preparing the crops to be shipped. Back in the day, agriculture was a community undertaking. Every spring, your community would prepare the ground and plant the crops. During the summer, everyone who wasn't out hunting game or being too old or infirm would help tend the crops and protect them from pests and pestilence. As the crops matured and eventually ripened, and autumn came around, the entire community would help bring in the harvest and store it for the winter. And this made sense because the entire community was going to have to survive the winter based on what had successfully grown in the previous seasons. There wasn't a lot of room for error, and even less room for a bad harvest. One bad harvest or crop failure, and people were going to die. Probably the best known crop failure in history was the Great Famine, which ran from 1845 to 1849 in Ireland. You might know it as the Irish Potato Famine. Thanks to a number of factors, not the least of which was dependence on a single crop and a system of absentee landlords who owned the land but were never around to oversee it and ensure its proper care, when potato blight hit the Irish crops, millions died and millions more left the country. All at a time when Ireland was a net exporter of food. They should have had enough to eat but the English and Scottish landowners were siphoning it all away to elsewhere, while also wringing money out of the country so fast that no one had the wherewithal to purchase needed supplies in the first place. 
government policy and several other factors worsened the crisis, set off hostilities, and by the end of the famine, nearly 25% of the population of Ireland was either gone or dead. Now, the Great Famine has a lot to unpack and change the course of Irish history. It had effects that still ripple through history today, and is far more complex than we can delve into here. We bring it up only to show what serious effects a crop failure can have, and why it was so important that a community come together to ensure that a growing season and subsequent harvest were as successful as they could be. And harvest festivals were one way in which a community could do that. Traditionally held at the end of the harvest, when the last of the crops were brought in, they were a celebration not only of the success of the crop, but also the end to the hardest work of the year. As such, harvest festivals feature banquets and merrymaking and provide a time for neighbors, friends, and family to enjoy the fruits of their labors while engaging in fellowship and the renewal of important bonds. Baskets of fruit and bushels of grain and many other products of the harvest would be laid at the doors and altars of churches as an expression of gratitude for a successful harvest, but also so they could then be distributed to those whose harvests weren't as successful or those who were in need due to illness or poverty. This ensured that the less fortunate could survive the winter as well. Additionally, the portion for the church could be taken from these offerings too. It was understood that the clergy tended a different and in many ways more important crop than the fruits of the field. So this support was seen as due recompense for their efforts. The actual finish of the harvest is often accompanied by ceremony and importance all its own. The final bushel of vegetables or sheaf of grain is often treated in a special way to signify the end of the harvest. The Zulu people of KwaZulu-Natal gather at Nongoma Palace during the December solstice to celebrate the First Fruits Festival, or Umkosi Wakwashama. Sometimes also called the Calabash Festival, it was a dead festival for many years thanks to a 110-year-old British colonial ban until the current Zulu king, a man named Goodwill Zwelathini Kabekuzulu, revived it in 1990. In the festival, the king is presented with a sample of the just-completed harvest, which he tastes. Pronouncing it to be good, he then dashes a calabash, an edible bottle gourd, to the ground, and participants are free to enjoy the first fruits of the harvest. Japan's Labor Thanksgiving Day is held on November 23rd and commemorates labor and production while also giving people an opportunity to come together and give thanks to one another. It stems from an older tradition that celebrated the harvest of the five cereals, wheat, three kinds of millet, and rice, as well as beans. In a tradition dating back to at least 650 CE, the Japanese emperor offers prayers of thanks for the year's harvest, prayers of hope for the coming year's harvest, and samples the first of the rice for the year. Chusuk, literally Autumn Eve, is a Korean harvest festival observed in both North and South Korea that occurs on the 15th day of the 8th month of the Chinese calendar. While it is a harvest festival, it places great emphasis on the bonds of family with traditional observances including visits to one's hometown and the graves of their ancestors. So important is the festival in both Koreas that the Red Cross organizations in each country have been able to coordinate a number of Chisuk events over recent years. This allows families separated by the division of the country in the 50s to cross the border and fulfill their obligations. 
England in particular has a whole host of harvest festival traditions at play around the country, thanks to the numerous cultural, political, and religious changes it has been host to over its long history. When the last load of corn came home, it was often customary to make a corn dolly or corn mother from the final sheaf. This roughly human-shaped doll would be held up in the air by someone riding atop the load as a signal to all that it was indeed the last load. Once home, the dolly would be placed in the kitchen or other suitable area and remain there until the next spring. This began as a belief in a spirit of the crops, which would inhabit a field and help the wheat or other grains to grow and reach full maturity. Upon harvest, it was thought, the spirit had no place to live out the harsh winter and might perish. So a corn dolly was made in which the spirit could live for the duration of the winter, after which it would be returned to the field and plowed in with the first furrow in the new year. In parts of Devon, and especially Cornwall, the tradition of crying the neck still takes place. Harvesters would travel from farm to farm in these areas, and because everything was done by hand using scythes and hooks, it could take weeks of hard labor to gather the entire harvest. As each farm's fields were completed, it was traditional for whomever had collected the last sheaf on that farm to hold it aloft and cry out, I have it, I have it, I have it to which the rest of the assembled harvesters would answer three times asking, What have ye? Again, the response would be given three times, The neck, the neck, the neck, at which time a cheer would go up, and the farmer whose field had just been cleared would be soundly congratulated before the harvesters moved on to the next field. As mechanical harvesting became more prominent and gradually took over, harvests could be completed much more quickly and required far fewer people, so the practice gradually died out. However, in Cornwall, it was revived in the early 20th century by the Old Cornwall Society, a society devoted to preserving the old ways and traditions of Cornwall, as well as the Cornish language. The Mel Supper was another Northern England tradition. Closely allied to crying the neck, Mel was a dialectic name for the last sheaf. Again, it was an occasion for celebration, but also included feasts and dancing. Some observances also included specific events and activities, such as the telling of stories in song and verse. One particular story is a sung dialogue between a girl named Polly and several people she meets along the way as she decides whom to marry. Another frequent element of the celebration is the coming of people referred to as geysers, whom the host was obliged to at least pretend to resist when they attempted to enter his house. These were generally good-natured people dressed in disguises who would roam the streets and offer, variously, either strong drink, good wishes, or the opportunity to rid oneself of an excess of worldly goods, among other things. But perhaps our favorite traditional harvest observance is something called the Harvest Home Gathering. Perhaps because it covers so many bases about traditional Thanksgiving celebrations in one singular event. It's a practice that not only happens in England, but in rural locations in Europe and North America as well. The old practice went roughly as follows. As the season wanes, usually in late September, and the last of the harvest is being gathered in, participants begin decorating the village with boughs of evergreen. When the last sheaf of corn or wheat is cut, it is formed into a corn dolly and soaked in water to encourage rain in the following year. Singing, dancing, and other merriment follows the corn dolly as it makes its way through town atop the final load from the field. Here, the traditions vary a bit. 
In some, a male supper occurs, just as we discussed already, with the corn dolly safe and protected from the long winter. In others, the spirit of the grain is symbolically murdered and driven out. In yet others, certain rites are performed that are meant to drive out the devil from the community as a whole. And again, some places did all of it. Of course, the feasting and fellowship, as well as the shared rituals and traditions, served to unify a community and strengthen the bonds of friendship and family. It reminded everyone that they were part of a larger whole, and emphasized that the success of the whole was important to the success of the individual. In any case, one thing seems to be consistent across most of the Harvest Home celebrations occurring in the last century and a half. A specific song. Henry Alford was born in London in 1810. He came from a long line of clergy and fairly quickly joined in the family tradition. Not one to straggle along at the back of the pack, by age ten he had already written a history of the Jews, a couple of odes in Latin, and a discussion and critique of how to preach in public. By 1834 he was a fellow at Trinity College. By all reports he was a well-liked, amiable man of the cloth in the Anglican tradition throughout his career. He was also, because one does not rest on one's laurels, a talented artist, poet, critic, musician, and engineer. He published five books of his own verse and wrote several well-known hymns including Forward Be Our Watchword and Ten Thousand Times Ten Thousand. Oh, and he translated the Odyssey. But mostly, he's famous for an eight-volume edition of the New Testament in Greek, which took him nearly twenty years to complete. And while he was doing that, in 1844, Henry Alford also wrote a little hymn. It was titled Harvest Hymn but is now probably more recognizable as the song sung on the occasion of Harvest Home. Some sing it as the last load is coming in from the field. Some sing it as part of the Mel Supper tradition. Regardless, it seems to make it into almost all the various Harvest Home traditions. And, as we wrap up this episode all about the importance of the harvest and family and friends, and head into the rest of the holiday season we'd like to leave you with a bit of the harvest hymn to enjoy while we wish you all the best this harvest season. Whatever tradition you enjoy. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>